The Holy Gospel according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. Now, as Jesus and his disciples went on their way, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. So she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part which will not be taken away from her. The Gospel of the Lord. So I've been thinking all week about water as we've got this theme going and baptism and we heard all of the different readings from Genesis to Revelation focusing on water and literal physical water in the sense of creation or the rock that sprung forth with water at Horeb so that the people in the wilderness could drink but also water in a spiritual, metaphorical sense of our spiritual thirst, our need for God. Water in the sense that, as I said, like a bath it cleanses us forgives us of our sin water is one of the most prevalent images that we find in the bible it's everywhere and so I've been thinking about my own experiences of water this week and uh, as I was wading through a number of them one floated to the top oh wow sorry sorry splash <laughs> One floated to the top, rose to the top, if uh, that's a little too much. Have any of you ever been to the Dead Sea in Israel-Palestine? Anyone? A few of you have. Uh, I, I took a trip to Israel-Palestine uh, a few years ago at the end of my seminary time, and one of the things that we did there was we spent an afternoon at the Dead Sea. And if you're not familiar with the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea has a salinity of 34%. Now, if that doesn't mean anything to you, salinity is the salt content in water. So obviously, fresh water, as in not salt water, has a salinity of zero or, or some sort of nominal amount. To give you perspective, however, the average salinity of the oceans, if you've ever been and swum in the oceans, is 3.5%. So if you've been in one of the oceans and you've gone out in the water and you sort of floated on your back, you've probably noticed that you actually float a whole lot easier in those salty ocean waters than you do in, say, Pactola or any other freshwater lake. So think that's 3.5%. The Dead Sea is 34% salinity. It's really kind of a wild experience to go out in it. Assuming you don't, uh, you know, chew your feet up because the salt makes the rocks just rigid, sharp. You get out there in the water and you just float. <laughs> and you don't have to lie on your back. It really, frankly, doesn't matter what position you put your body in, how your limbs may be flailing here, there, or, or everywhere. You are going to float. <laughs> It's really an, an odd feeling. You get out there and you move around and eventually you just realize that it doesn't actually matter. 
And so you try and find whatever sort of comfortable position you want to relax in, and you sit there. It's like, it's like those floaty blow-up chairs that you can put out in a pool that are just there, except it moves with you. In whatever position you put yourself in, you just float there. And so eventually you just find a position that feels comfortable enough, and you just relax and rest in those salty waters that are going to hold you up. You cannot, will not sink. The waters will hold you up. And I think that story floated to the top, as it were, because the waters of baptism, as we're reminded of today, are the same way. They hold us up. No matter where we go, no matter what we do, we can rest in those waters They are going to hold us up and hold us together. That's what God's grace does. We don't need to get ourselves in exactly the right posture floating on our back to be held up. We don't need to tread water and have perfect form. The waters themselves, God's gift of grace and mercy, hold us up. That's the way that they work. That's what they do. Butch, do you have my slides there? This was one of the readings that we heard from Titus. He saved us not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the water of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Not because of any works of righteousness that we had done. Not because we put ourselves in the right position, we had great form, we did all of the right things in the water simply by God's grace, not because of our own works or efforts, like lying back in those salty waters. What do we do, however? I think more often than not, we're like the person that doesn't know how to swim. They get thrown in the water and they're flailing limbs all over the place with the assumption that more action has to be better if you're worried about drowning. And so you've got limbs here, there, or everywhere, water splashing, you're panicked, it's going everywhere, and you're very quickly just exhausting yourself. Next slide. Martha, Martha. You are worried and distracted by many things. Flailing about, trying to keep things together, trying to stay afloat. Martha, Martha, you are distracted and worried by many things. That's what Jesus tells her. What would he say to us? I mean, a little perspective on Martha's life. Martha, pre-electricity, would have been living sunrise to sunset. Did you realize that before Edison invented the light bulb, people got an average of 11 hours of sleep? When was the last time you had 11 hours of sleep? (laughs) Or think about this in regards to Martha's life. They didn't have watches. They, they had ways to keep time, but they didn't have personal timekeeping devices that they were carrying around with them all the time. Think what that would do to your schedule if you couldn't book it out every single 15 minutes because people weren't that exact in their timekeeping. Think of how much that would necessarily open things up. 
Martha also didn't have vehicles or public transit, so her world on any given day probably stretched a mile or two at the most. She wasn't going all over the place, running around, covering all this distance. She was in a small geographic area, and with that, her social circle was relatively small, the people that she was trying to manage and maintain relationship with. And all of that is not even to mention telephones or the internet or social media or all of the other different ways that we have and feel compelled to communicate with others and to take in, keep up on new information. Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. Oh my goodness, what would Jesus say to us? I imagine it would be much the same thing, except it might be prefaced by something like, oh, people, you are worried and distracted by many things, many things. Did you know that clinical psychologists have started to diagnose this? There's a thing called hurry sickness. Hurry sickness. I've been reading this book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and it's exposed me to this idea. This is like an actual disease that they're talking about. Hurry sickness. So a few definitions. This is a, a book by John Mark Comer. And so you can give me the next slide here, Butch. And his simplified definition, you can just decide whether any of this resonates with you. If this might be a little bit of an opportunity to self-diagnose yourself for hurry sickness. So John Mark Comer describes it as a behavior pattern characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness. Next slide. This is from Psychology Today. So now we're moving into actual psychologists. A malice in which a person feels chronically short of time and so tends to perform every task faster and to get flustered when encountering any kind of delay. Who within the last week has found themselves at a Target or a Safeway or a family fair and you've figured out that you chose the wrong line? (laughs) And you're looking over there, God, I did it again. I always seem to choose the wrong line. Or that person at the stoplights, the light just changed green a second and a half ago and you're still sitting. Honk, go, get on it. That's not normal. We shouldn't be that stressed out by a second and a half or even two, three, four minutes if we get caught in the wrong line and they've got to empty their whole cart. That's not normal or healthy. One more definition for you. A continuous struggle and unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less and less time. I mean, self-diagnosis, I won't make you uh, raise your hand or anything, but anyone think they might have hurry sickness? I mean, hurry sickness, this concept, was coined in the 50s. Now, the 50s weren't quite the first century, but there have been a lot of developments since the 50s that make our lives a whole lot more hurried than lives were in the 50s. 
So just take that and assume that hurried sickness has gotten a lot worse since the idea really was formed. And there are actual consequences to this. The research started this concept with the observation that people who are having heart issues, heart attacks, serious ones, often had this sense of not having enough time. This is back in the 50s. When we're talking about a sickness, we're talking about physical effects. It is literally killing us. Hurry, sickness. The fact that everyone has it does not make it okay or healthy. The fact that we look around and our neighbors, our family members, the strangers that we don't even know seem to be in the exact same boat with us doesn't make it good or healthy. We've got a problem as a society. We're sick. We're on this constant path of trying to do and get more and more and more. And it is a path that has no end. There is no point at which we will feel like we have enough or have done enough because we are finite creatures and there is an infinite number of things to have or acquire and experiences things to do. We will never be perfectly satisfied following that road. Next slide, Butch. Saint, oh, oh, sorry, I skipped this one. Just an observation from another pastor theologian. We have become perhaps the most emotionally exhausted, psychologically overworked, spiritually malnourished people in history. In history. If you want to know the spiritual sickness, the spiritual problem with the world, I'm pretty confident that has very little or nothing to do with prayer in schools or other religions or even declining church attendance. This is the heart of it. People simply don't have time or maybe more accurately don't make time for a real relationship with God. Even us who who gather here, since most of us have self-diagnosed as having this hurry sickness, you know, we make time to sort of come here, but then we go and many of us struggle to make enough time to have a meaningful experience, a spiritual encounter with God. Any relationship requires an investment of time, and God is no different. If we don't make the time, we will not have a meaningful experience of relationship with God. That doesn't mean that God isn't there, that God leaves in anywhere. It just means that our experience of God's presence with us is going to struggle. It's going to feel like there's something lacking. So we have this path that is an endless doing and accumulation that takes up more and more of our time, inevitably takes time away from what we might invest in God, that ultimately leads to a dissatisfaction and endless restlessness because there will always be more to do or more to acquire, even as it doesn't make us more happy. That's been researched as well. The option is, next slide, St. Augustine said this way back in the fourth century. You have made us for yourself, God, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. This path that we are all on, 
all of us who have any amount of hurry sickness, the society and culture as a whole, it will leave us restless because there is only one place to find rest. We need to learn how to lean back into the salty waters of baptism, trusting that even when we're not flailing about exhausting ourselves, trying to do everything, God will hold us up. God will hold us together. God will hold the world around us together. It will not collapse if we take a day off. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're sitting there and saying, yeah, but pastor, you you just don't understand. I I have all of these important things to do between my job and my family and on and on. Okay, this is what I have to say to you. (laughs) Who do you really think that you are? If you read the Gospels, you will see time and time again how Jesus pauses We oftentimes glean over it because it's little transition notes where Jesus goes away. Jesus takes a break to simply be. Are you really trying to tell me that your work is more important than Jesus? Then your work is more important than what Jesus was doing. Or let's go back a little bit further. The creation story. God creates the world in six days, and what does God do on the seventh day? Are you really trying to tell me that God needed to rest, but you don't? It's one of the commandments, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. The explanation as it goes on in Exodus points back to creation. For God rested. For God rested. If God rested, you need to rest too. It's not really an invitation. It is a commandment. It's simply a need that we as human beings have. Like any commandments, we can break it and decide to keep going and doing our own thing, but there are consequences. There are consequences to this unwillingness to take a break, this hurry sickness that runs rampant through our lives. Consequences in the way of stress and anxiety and depression and exhaustion and on and on and on, that we are suffering from this malady, most all of us. Now, none of this is to say that we don't have important work to do. I know that you all have important things to do, whether it's professionally or related to your family or your friends. You are called to do meaningful, valuable things in this world. Last week, we just heard the story of the Good Samaritan. We are called in the Christian life to work for peace and justice, to care for our neighbors in need. That's part of the life. There is a work involved. Your various vocations are important and meaningful. I'm not suggesting in any way, shape, or form that you should throw them out the window. God has called you to them. The question is, are you working so that you can rest, or do you rest so that you can work? I'll repeat that again. Are you working so that you can rest, or do you rest so that you can work? Our culture is built around working so that we can rest. Think about retirement. You work for your decades and decades. You save up your money over those decades so that you can retire, and then you get to rest, right? 
That's the pattern. That's the way that it's laid out for us. I'm, you know, this isn't just a matter of us all personally having this issue. It's the matter of us all swimming in these unhealthy waters that are slowly sinking us, that we're slowly drowning in, but we're surrounded by it, all of us. It's a shared problem not just an individual one, even as we individually experience it. Or or think about the way that we talk about rest and vacation in our our personal lives. We say things like, oh, I'm going on vacation. You earned it, Pastor Chris. You deserve it. Earned, deserved, because you work so much already. Working so that we can rest. That's the pattern of the society that we live in. And that's only when our actual rests are really rests because the word Sabbath means stop. That's what it means when remember the Sabbath is the commandment, we're being told to stop. It also means delight. It's supposed to be a positive experience, delighting in the world that we're living in. But stop. Now, stop in the Sabbath context is not the same as day-offs as we often use. Day-offs in our world is oftentimes you do all the things that you don't get paid for. (laughs) You're still just doing and doing and doing all of the other stuff around the house. It's just the other stuff that aren't your technical employments. That's not Sabbath. One spiritual writer called that the, the bastard Sabbath. We're still doing all of this work. It's just not our professional lives. And thus, because it's all this work, it's not actual rest. It's not Sabbath rest. It's not the commandment rest that actually refreshes. The biblical way is to rest so that we can work. We start in the place of rest. We start like Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, paying attention to God and to ourselves and our works of love. The work that we do in the world flows out from that. We start with being whole people, allowing our hearts and minds and souls to catch up with our bodies so that we are whole when we go out into the world, when we enter into our various relationships, when we take up our various tasks. We do it as whole beings, not people that are torn and pulled in a million different directions. And the irony of it is we actually tend to work a whole lot more effectively when we do it as whole people. It's not actually a sacrifice of productivity. It's a claiming of our sanity, of a little peace of mind, of our true selves, that we are okay just as we are. We don't need to do all of these workings to belong or be accepted or to be enough. So here's my spiritual prescription for you. Do nothing. Do nothing. And by do nothing, I don't mean sit on your couch and put Netflix on. 
and watch television. And I don't mean reflexively whip out your phone and scroll through Facebook or TikTok. I mean actually do nothing. Those things can be relaxing, sure, but there's still more things. It's more information, more stimulation. Entertainment and distraction is not the same as rest. We've got a million ways to, that we entertain and distract ourselves. The average person in the United States passes 750 hours on social media per year and 2,500 watching television. None of that is the rest that we're talking about in a spiritual sense. The rest of sitting at Jesus' feet, just taking God's presence in, allowing God to make us whole. When I say do nothing, I mean do nothing. Let your mind wander. Give yourself permission to produce nothing to focus on nothing, to daydream, to look out the window and notice something or nothing at all. You can do nothing in all sorts of different ways and places. You can do nothing by yourself at home in a quiet time in the morning. You can do nothing walking out in the hills. You can do nothing, as I often do, sitting downtown at a coffee shop, sipping my coffee and just watching people pass by. You can do nothing in a bubble bath. You can do nothing with a glass of wine. There is all sorts of ways that you can embody this spiritual practice of do nothing, but it is an intentional practice of setting aside the time. It all comes back to time. But I'll tell you, you're not going to convince me that you don't have it, that you don't have enough time in the day that to do nothing to sit at Jesus' feet, to allow God to make you whole again as your heart, mind, and soul catches up with your body. You remember who you are. You remember who you belong to. You rest in those waters that will hold you. They will hold you. If you pause, if you stop, if you take an hour or a day, the world is not going to fall apart. God will not let it. We are not the ones that hold it all together. God is. And God not only gives us permission, God, gives, God commands us to stop and to rest. And with that command is the promise that you will not drown. You will be okay. In fact, you will be better than okay. You will find that you have more life, more joy, more energy, that your relationships will flourish because you have more to bring to them that your faith will be deeper because you have time to give to it. The experience of God, your experience in the world, all of that will be richer when you take the time for it. Stop. Rest. Trust that God will hold you that this hurry sickness that infects us all can be healed, 
and that there is a more abundant life, a way that Jesus offers us if we're willing to change course, to take the time to stop and to simply be doing nothing in the presence of God. Amen.